Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues, Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. Warner Archive Collection podcast is back with 10 new additions to the Warner Archive Collection. This week, we're going to be talking about not one, not two, not three, but four Four titles that are new to Blu-ray. And in some cases, these releases are quite unique. We have, from 1948, two films that starred the great Robert Mitchum. We have director Robert Wise's Blood on the Moon from RKO Pictures in 1948, co-starring the great Robert Preston and Barbara Bel Geddes. It's a noirish Western, and we're going to have a lot of fun talking about that. Also from 1948, we have Rachel and the Stranger, another RKO release starring Robert Mitchum as well as William Holden and Loretta Young. And what's exciting about this release is we've restored between 12 and 13 minutes of footage that hasn't been seen since 1954. Well, actually, it hasn't been seen since 1948 when the film was first released. And when the film was re-released in 1954, they cut out this footage We've put it back, we've restored it, and it looks gorgeous. The next film that's making its Blu-ray debut is Sweet Bird of Youth, based on the play by Tennessee Williams, starring Geraldine Page, opposite the amazing Paul Newman. That's a 1962 MGM film. And the last of the new Blu-rays is actually two copies of the same movie. It's a two-disc set. But they look very different. It's Reflections in a Golden Eye, based on the work by Carson McCullers from 1967, starring Marlon Brando, Elizabeth Taylor, Brian Keith, and Julie Harris. And it is presented in both director John Huston's original intended version with a golden hue, which was pulled out of release after a week and replaced by a traditional color palette. And we have two discs in this to Blu-ray set, so you get to choose which way you want to watch the movie. This way, nobody can complain. And we also have, new to DVD, the seventh and final season of a series we've been very proud to bring you since its very first season, not that long ago. But this is Step by Step, the complete seventh season, starring Patrick Duffy and Suzanne Summers. This is the 1997-98 season that wrapped it up for a hit sitcom that still rings true today, low 23 years after it first began airing in its last season. That's how old this recent show is. Then we have five back-in-print films, but the first two of them, we've brought them back in print in widescreen form. They are widescreen films, and the DVDs were inaccurately released in a 137 pan and scan version. These are 185 widescreen films, and the DVDs are making their debut in the proper aspect ratio. The first of them is them, with an exclamation point from 1954. For those of you who don't already have the amazing Blu-ray of that movie, this is your chance to own it on DVD with the proper aspect ratio. And then we have the magnificent Don Rickles epic, Innocent, <laughs> from 1992, a film we've also had the pleasure of bringing on to Blu-ray. And now you can have it on DVD in the proper aspect ratio. 
Back in print on DVD as it originally was, Errol Flynn's Stars in Desperate Journey from 1942, Val Luton's Curse of the Cat People from 1944, and then we have a double feature of Village of the Damned from 1960 and its sequel, Children of the Damned from 1963, both conveniently on one DVD disc with commentaries, It's a Dandy DVD, and back in print. Let's begin the discussion with the Blu-rays and the wonderful release that we're very proud of, of Blood on the Moon. Back in the olden, olden days of, of nascent film collecting, before the home entertainment DVD phenomenon really took off, this film was so hard to find. I remember hearing about Blood on the Moon, this great Robert Wise-directed film noirish western, but... Finding a screening of it or a showing on television was really, really, really hard. And then I remember you would see poor bootleg copies getting traded by people. And then find, to actually finally see the film uh, and have it actually measure up to all the cult rumors about it was, is a real pleasure. I mean, I had seen it before in, in a theater screening, but point being... Great film, simply made. Robert Wise, like almost out of the gate, and probably because of his background as an editor, really was a confident storyteller. And he lets this sort of complicated plot unfold, but we're really just spending time as these characters grow and change and adapt to one another. This is an excellent example of what we've talked about before on how uh, certain film units were making crime films and action films, and then when they turn their craft to a Western, bring that to the table. And this Western, and what's interesting, of course, is since we get a double shot of Mitchum, is, is comparing it even to this to the next one in 1948, which we, we have a, a, it's such a fantastic opportunity for the podcast to, to be able to do that, is how, and Mitchum especially, comes across in each one. And this is, if you are not, a necessarily a western fan this is the western for you because it is dark it is morally ambiguous but yet it uses the western and the western genre in a way that fits with the genre it is a western it was one of these movies that just instantly sucks you in yeah, uh, that. and spits you out there's an anecdote from the filming of this movie that uh robert wise tells about how the first scene they shot when, with Mitchum in his full outfit as mm -hmm. Gary uh, was uh, the barroom scene with Walter Brennan. And Walter Brennan, yeah. as we all know, lived and breathed the West. And yes. so the story is that when Mitchum walked in dressed as a cowboy, Walter Brennan said, darn it, that's the realest damn cowboy I've ever seen. Yeah, and it is a Western. And that barroom scene is... You know, it's it's a classic scene because it stands out, but it feels so real. And, you know, 1948 was a big year for, like, neorealism and, like, you know, this more grounded sensibility. And, and you see it right here, and it works to such uh, great and effective. It's just an effective use of so many talents coming together. And in a Blu-ray, again, you know, we've been talking about Blu-ray black and white and... This is a film where the lights and the darks and the shadows just come alive in a way that has not been seen since, like, probably ever. 
This is a film that never made it to DVD. And the reason it never made it to DVD was that the film elements we had looked, uh, for lack of a better word, awful. They were so many generations away from the original negative that the film just looked really unacceptable for DVD. Uh, no less Blu-ray. Uh, what we've done is there's no special trickery here. We were able to secure the original camera negative, which was in fine shape, and it is on deposit at the Library of Congress. It was sent to Warner Brothers for scanning at 4K for preservation, and it is from that scan that we have created this new master. Once again, the wizards of ours, the people at Warner Brothers Motion Picture Imaging, have done a stellar job making this film look absolutely crisp and clear. And the sound has been completely restored and is also amazing. And uh, we're so fortunate that we could see this film finally look the way it did in 1948. It's immaculate. It's been scrubbed and... There is a healthy patina of grain, as there should be in a, in a film that was shot on film. It is a triumph when we can bring something like this to Blu-ray. And we're very, very proud of it. And I hope that Mr. Wise would be proud as well. Yeah, yeah. speaking of the talent, we should mention, you know, the you know, Robert Wise and the Nicholas Muzurica shot it, which is why we have the lush shadows and yes. great use of black and white and the cast. Aside from Mitchum is, I mean, we mentioned Walter Brennan, but Barbara Bel Geddes has a very opposite neat, cute scene with Mitchum and then Tom Tully. And of course, best of all, Robert Preston as a bad guy. What a fantastic bad guy. He's like, so good. He played before he was Harold Hill. Oh, yeah. A lot of bad guys. Yeah. And he was he was a tremendous actor. Yep. But he had a whole second career, you know, and he started in the late 30s uh, at Paramount and uh, played a lot of bad guys. You can see just a slight touch of that Harold Hill con man in his character here, just a little around the edges. You really want to like him, even though he's the bad guy. Right. Yeah, well, but that makes him believable as a bad guy. Like, it's, and it's, it's what is surprising because it's not, it's a it's a different take on the bad guy and uniquely again to the western like you kind of understand his motivations which i think makes a good villain and it's unique to him and unique to the situation so again it just still draws you in and and draws you into this messy messy world it's always a great triumph when you can take an RKO film because the RKO library was not very well cared for in the years after Howard Hughes sold RKO to the General Tire Company. Uh, a lot of original negatives were lost, stolen, or strayed. I don't know how you can say it, but a lot of original negatives on RKO films don't exist. But thankfully, there are many that do, and this is one of them. And that's why we now have this great new master from a 4K scan, and it makes for a luscious Blu-ray and great entertainment. This film is, I think, going to find a new audience because people yeah. haven't yeah. seen it and see it look good. And that's really a great thing. So next, we have another film from 1948. And another film from RKO, and another film 
with Robert Mitchum. This is a very different Robert Mitchum, and yet the same. This isn't nearly as much uh, film noirish, but it is a very naturalistic, modern sensibility kind of film, in my opinion. And you've got William Holden as the male lead, Loretta Young as the female lead, and Robert Young forming what is basically a love triangle in Rachel and the Stranger. And Rachel and the Stranger was directed by Norman Foster, who made the Orson Welles film uh, Journey into Fear and has a very impressive uh, list of credits, but isn't a very well-known director. But uh, this was produced by Dory Sherry when he was head of RKO production right before he left RKO to go to MGM. And the screenplay was co-authored by Waldo Salt, who was blacklisted and later on went on to write such films as Midnight Cowboy and Coming Home. And it seems like this is a whole hundred years earlier in filmdom from those films, but it was really only just 20 to 30 years difference of time. But because Waldo Salt was blacklisted, when the film was reissued in 1954 and Howard Hughes had tight ownership of RKO, he had the film shorn by about 12 to 13 minutes and it became a 79 minute movie. Waldo Salt's credit was removed from the screen and this was the way everybody has seen the movie for the last 60 some odd years. We have completed a restoration using the original camera negative, which was cut with the footage removed by RKO and not saved. And we had a nitrate duplicate negative, which was found in Britain. And that provided us the needed missing footage that could enable us to restore the film to its original length and give you what I think is a very charming story with great performances from all the leads. The gentlemen are wonderful. And Loretta Young, who was really on a roll there, uh, coming off The Bishop's Wife and uh, her role in The Farmer's Daughter, she then takes on this role. It seems, I think one of the things that really impresses me about this movie is it doesn't seem like Hollywood hokum. I got to feel that it's that post-war neorealism influence in filmmaking. And certainly Dory Sherry was trying to tell more adult stories. And this is a very charming film. And I didn't really think much of it in its edited form. I thought it was okay. But I knew that its restoration was something that we had to do. So again, we wouldn't release it on DVD in its cut form. It didn't look as bad as Blood on the Moon did, but it didn't look very good. But thankfully, it looks fantastic now, thanks to the nitrate sources, and it's complete, and it's been restored both picture and sound. And one of the interesting things I found out as I was researching the movie in preparation for this podcast is Robert Mitchum actually released some of the songs on a set of 78 records, uh, you know, the 78 RPM album, because they wrote these little folk songs for the film. And Waldo Salt, I think, actually wrote the lyrics. And they're really quite charming. So if you only know Robert Mitchum's vocal talents 
from his Calypso album, uh, you're in for a real surprise. Uh, he does very well with just a guitar. And, and you get to see him sing in the film. I mean, he's a, he's a singing strumming huntsman. His vocal styling is 100% Mitchum, you know, oh, yeah. but it just works. But that's, I think, the key to this movie is that the story combined with the actors and a very boiled down and, and ultimately simple uh, narrative is how it's able to weave the complexity. And, now, and it comes down to the talents of everyone involved. Now, behind the scenes, it's an interesting story in terms of, evidently, and I don't know if this is true or not, George, you might have some insights. I know that this film was a big success for RKO, but the, yeah. the story is that they rushed to get it into the theaters because at the time, Mitchum's name is in all the papers because of an incident involving something you smoke. Right. He had gotten a... It's, it's no secret he had been arrested for possession of marijuana the film wasn't rushed out it was just a very good timing that rather than punishing mitchum howard hughes had just taken ownership of the studio he had nothing to do with the making of the movie but he did see the opportunity to cash in on the fact that Mitchum was in the headlines And the interesting thing about Mitchum's arrest for the marijuana possession is he didn't seem to have to pay any penalty. His fan base just became even more rabid and loyal and what kept him to be a movie star for the next 40 plus years. He had an amazing career. He was a tough guy in real life, and he had been through a lot of scuffles. He had a little bit of a rough start. You can see him playing bit parts in earlier movies as he struggled to obtain fame. And it really was at RKO that he established his screen persona. But what I think is the real amazing thing about this film is the performances by Holden, Loretta Young, and Mitchum. Mm -hmm. They don't seem forced and they don't seem as stylized as most Hollywood films of the period would be. That's exactly where it could live or die. And they brought it wonderfully to life. And and it's a very funny sort of uh, cross-section of... um acting styles. I mean, it all worked, but you think about Loretta Young, who by this time had been acting in films for 20 years, and then you both Holden, and Mitchum was in his stardom, and Holden was still growing, and Holden's very very much a neorealist actor. Bob Mitchum sort of on the cusp between New Hollywood and Old Hollywood, and Loretta Young, who was very thoroughly Old Hollywood, yet they all measure their performances around each other to create a very realistic pace and feel for all these characters and their pioneer situations. Which and which basically the story is quite simple, even though it's a little bit odd. As they're settling out west, Robert Mitchum is the best friend of William Holden. William Holden is a, a settler with a ranch small ranch he's got a young son and his wife we learn has recently died of the sickness they don't specify exactly what it is she died of but he's obviously in grief over the loss of his wife 
and he is very shut down about it. He and his son are dealing with the absence of wife and mother, and William Holden decides to get a new wife because there needs to be a woman around the house to do the chores and the cleaning. And this is also, just broadly speaking, economically, this is labor. Right. I mean, not just women's work, but you, this is a business operation. And well, it, he recognizes to be clear, that, that need. He, he doesn't get a wife. He buys a wife because she's an indentured servant, which is a sort of class right. of servitude that the movies really didn't talk about Never. much. Yeah. But that's another thing that makes this film very interesting because it, it, it directly plays out her indentured servitude role. And a lot of the film is about Big Davy, William Holden's character learning to see her as a human being. This is a phenomenon that this film exposed me to this servitude, slavery, really. Yep. What, of course, happens is, without giving away spoilers, eventually William Holden and Loretta Young both find the side of each other that leads to... It's no secret that a 1948 movie would have a happy ending. Um, However... It wouldn't be there without the stranger. It's fascinating the way Mitchum approaches this world because he's a third part of the uh, romance the, of the triangle. But if you watch and rewatch this film, it's never exactly clear whether Jim is really interested in her or if he's just prodding Big yep. Baby to understand that he's actually in love with her. Absolutely. It's, it's ambiguous in that way. And that's one of the things that's charming about it. Even with the restoration of all this footage, it runs a very efficient, just under 93 minutes. I'm just curious because it ran so tightly. What did they cut out? They cut out a lot of important plot points. They got to the climax a lot faster. Oh, well, that sounds like a huge decision. Let's get they, to the end. They, they made cuts in the movie. When you have a film that's so short and that's so well written by such talented people, it's ad actually an adaptation of two short stories. The gentleman that wrote the short stories collaborated on the screenplay. And the way it's all crafted together is really very, very intelligent. And that's why it holds up. But my point is, is that you can watch this film again and again because it's so well told. The characters are very likable and very complicated. They're not simple cardboard cutouts. Yeah. I'm hoping that now that we've restored the footage and it looks so good that like Blood on the Moon, a new audience will discover this film that, again, as Dan so wisely pointed out, was a box office blockbuster in 1948. So now we're going to go forward into 1962 as the production code is starting to buckle. Highly enforced, but movies are starting to stretch the boundaries of dealing with sex and uh, seduction and immorality. That is a central theme in the works of Tennessee Williams. And Tennessee Williams stage plays didn't make it to the screen intact almost every time. This one isn't as 
butchered as some of the others were. But we're basically dealing with Geraldine Page playing a faded movie star, uh, recreating her stage triumph in this role. And on the stage, she played opposite Rip Torn, who later became her real-life husband until her death. But Rip Torn ends up playing a supporting role in the film, and Paul Newman takes over the leading role of the male gigolo who's basically accompanying, shall we say, the faded movie star who seems to have a love affair with not just Paul Newman, but also with the alcohol bottle. And you've got an Academy Award-winning supporting performance from Ed Begley Sr. And it's really a tremendous film, but it's also one of the rare opportunities where you get to see someone who gave an unforgettable performance on the stage recreate that role on the screen. Geraldine Page does that here, just like Marlon Brando did in Streetcar Named Desire. We didn't get to see Jessica Tandy as Blanche Dubois in the film, but we got the London stage star, Vivian Lee, and frankly, as much as I love Jessica Tandy, I'm very glad they made the choice that they did. But in this case, Paul Newman uh, is coming off of having done Cat on a Hot Tin Roof with Elizabeth Taylor. It all works, and it works really well. There's just a minor change made to the end of the movie. <laughs> but the price Paul Newman's character pays for his wicked, wicked ways. The stage ending is... Quite a bit different than the film's uh, happy ending. We'll, we'll just right. say that his his adult situations were uh, removed. I was going to say it was a very Greco resolution in the stage. Sure, probably. yeah, yeah, yeah. And knowing that when you approach the film, you know, because it's um, that's a Tennessee Williams ending. You yeah. know what I mean? And so, oh, for sure. Uh, however, when you watch this unfold and this gothic romance, it is. The, and especially, again, on the Blu-ray, the textures of it, the feel of the, the heaviness of the South and the, you know, it's like it's all there. But but wonderfully, what, of course, you can't get in the stage play. I just love the opening, the car ride, because this is you oh. know, now becomes more yeah. of a road trip. No, there's some it's really interesting footage things that Richard Brooks does with, with opening the stage play up into being a film. And there's also just because of that, it was shot in 1962. You actually see little, little bursts of the, of what was coming in the sixties coming through. Mm -hmm. And the Blu-ray is as all of our masters are, we create new, especially for the Blu-ray. But we should mention that it looks absolutely spectacular. What doesn't look spectacular, but is the best quality we can provide, is a wonderful extra that normally we don't have. And that is we have Geraldine Page's screen test for the film. And it's in, I would say, raggedy condition. Again, these were work prints. But she did her screen test with Rip Torn uh, as opposed to doing her screen test with Paul Newman. So it's a real unique opportunity to see the two of them together in that fashion. But uh, it's a terrific film. The Blu-ray looks great. 
And speaking of great looking Blu-rays, we've got two of the same movies that look different for the next film. And that's Reflections in a Golden Eye. This was a Seven Arts production that ended up being released by Warner Brothers Seven Arts by the time it was completed. Because the people at Seven Arts bought out Jack Warner and suddenly the company had a new name. John Huston directed this film, adapted from the Carson McCullers work. And he decided that everything should have a golden hue. And although it was shot traditionally, work was done in the laboratory to give it a golden hue. And it was released in New York theatrically with this golden look. And uh, I went back and read the New York Times review. I think it was Bosley Crowther who reviewed yeah. He wrote a scathing review of Bonnie and Clyde, which tells you what his uh, <laughs> were like at that time that year. And he wrote a scathing review of this film. He just didn't get it at all. And he didn't get the gold. And a lot of people had trouble with the gold. And the studio decided, no, we're going to have to start over again and make regular traditional palette prints. And that's how everybody saw the movie from then on, is with traditional color, until we released it on DVD about 15 years ago, and we put out the golden version only. But of course, there were people out there who said, I can't stand this. I don't want what the director intended. I want to see it with full color. So we've done it both ways this time. So I think it's too much to ask that nobody would complain it looks gorgeous. It's immaculately clean. But you have both versions, so I think we've limited the potential for people to complain. Most importantly, you've got great performances from Elizabeth Taylor, Marlon Brando, who fills a role that was originally intended for Montgomery Clift, who passed away before the shooting began, Brian Keith, Julie Harris, and a very young Robert Forster, who recently passed away. And it is a film you really have to see to just kind of digest. It's about repression. It's about lust. It's about all things that were going to break down the production code is what it's about. Yeah. And it's uh, interesting. You mentioned uh, the New York Times review. If you go back and find Roger Ebert's review of this film, he is one right. of the few critics that got it. And he got it way... I mean, he actually goes in his review talking about how people in the audience were responding to the film because, honestly, it was way ahead of its time. Watching this film from today's perspective is a very comfortable, understanding, gripping psychological story about a murder in an army base. Whereas in the 60s, people were still consumed with ideas of, uh, we're, we're uncomfortable just talking about homosexuality or repressed desire or any of this stuff. So it made them squeamish, so they turned on the film. It's definitely a product of those years, like, you know, 1967 to the early 70s. And this is a film made by uh, cultural veterans, right? You know, right. But, but this was kind of their take on what was new and what was coming. And in watching it, you could only imagine what people at the time were thinking. And by the way, because the acting and the choices are so interesting and so out there, but organic, it still is a little shocking. And one of the more interesting things that I personally encountered, especially at the end, was because you can see where popular culture has gained acceptance, 
But even when it comes to like, what is a murder, right? Today, some people wouldn't want to call that a murder. Like, like it's, it's a fascinating, they'd be like, that's defense, home defense. I mean, like, I'm just kind of trying to run it through cultural filters today. Also, when you compare the golden version to maybe people's reactions 15 years ago, because of computers, a lot of mainstream movies use, you know, different computer programs and posts to radically change the look and feel of a film, whether it's like blue or gold or just, you know, because the hues, the, co the color contrast in a film is so malleable now, it's very common. So this is almost a very interesting practical effect of something that maybe, you know, would be unique to the Matrix or uh, a modern superhero film. So all four of these now are available yeah. Blu-ray, part of our ongoing quest to bring you the very best of our library on Blu-ray. For DVD, we wrap up our love oh. affair with Step by Step, the sitcom with Something for Everyone, Patrick Duffy and Suzanne Summers star. And this was a shorter season than normal. Uh, there weren't as many episodes as there had been in the previous seasons. But things wrap up nicely, and we have had such sales success with the previous seasons. We know a lot of you are going to enjoy the seventh season of Step by Step and urge you to go to your computer and order it right away. I also want to mention the films that are back in print on DVD. I talked about them earlier at the beginning. Them, our favorite movie with giant ants. Yes. <laughs> without question. And notably a film that's black and white, but that has the color just for the title. A magnificent movie. It's a bonafide classic. And it was projected in 185 aspect ratio. And we did release it on Blu-ray a couple of years ago. Not Warner Archive, but Warner Home, Home Entertainment. And when that came out, there were actually people who didn't know their film history and were complaining that it was the wrong aspect ratio. Well, they were wrong. They still are. When I posted uh, just recently, uh, I posted the trailer for them. Are they complaining about it's, it? Yeah. It's unbelievable. The other film that we're bringing back in print, but this time in the proper aspect ratio, is John Landis' Innocent Blood from 1992, which is both a vampire movie and a comedy. It's a floor wax and a dessert topping. It's just terrific. And as I mentioned earlier, it does have a wonderful supporting performance by the late, great Don Rickles. Also back in print without any question concerning aspect ratio, yeah. Flynn stars in the Warner Brothers classic Desperate Journey from 1942. And then back in print on DVD as a standalone DVD, producer Val Luton's Curse of the Cat People from 1944, which is sort of not a sequel to the Cat People. Big debate about that. But you have a reunion of Simone, Simone, and Ken Smith and uh, various other players. And anytime we have something for Val Luton fans, it's something to be celebrated. And last but not least, Village of the Damned and Children of the Damned share a DVD. They were short enough that they could fit on a single disc. Both are presented with commentaries and they are icons of English horror cinema in black and white. And uh, we also want to remind you that if you're looking for instant entertainment, 
during these times of pandemic as we're recording this. And as you're listening to this, unless you're listening to an old podcast, if you want something for immediate gratification, you can go to the Warner Archive room on iTunes. Go to iTunes.com backslash Warner Archive or go to the classic genre on the Warner, uh, excuse me, on the iTunes movie store and go to the bottom of the page and look for the swish and click on the Warner Archive room. You will find many, many classic films from decades of Warnerdom to delight you along with television shows and animation. So we hope that you'll check out the Warner Archive room on iTunes. There are movies there in HD that you can't get any other way. We have had a lot of great success and a lot of fans that are happy that these films are available for digital purchase or sale or rental. Last but not least, we're going to read some letters on the podcast that came to us via email. But alas, we don't have time to do so. We're out of time this week. So save them for next week. But until that time, I am George Feltenstein. I'm Matt Patterson. Oh, man, don't you know only squares drink gin martinis with olives? And on that note, I want to raise a highball and say look forward to the next Warner Archive podcast. <laughs>